because like, I think it's been so commercialized and so like, oh, like self-love just means like a bubble bath and a mask and like a glass of wine and, you know, that kind of thing. I'm like, it's not that at all. Because what she was trying to teach me was that all of my problems were stemming from self-loathing. Like I was just like, I feel this incessant need to always prove myself because that's how I feel like I get love. Achievements, success, like, you know, it's like it starts with like grades and then it goes to like trophies and things. And then it's like, okay, what job do you have? And like, where do you live? And all of these like tick marks. And then I was feeling so frustrated because I was like, I'm so unhappy. I have all the things. I look exactly like I should be looking. I'm doing everything. I'm miserable. What is the deal? And she's like, because you don't love yourself. And I was like, that's so stupid. Why do I need to love myself? Like, what does that have to do with anything? I'm Alison Rice and welcome to Offline, the podcast. These are honest conversations about true self with the people behind the Instagram accounts and the teachers who help us on our way. A lot has changed since I launched offline in September 2018. It started as a podcast and thanks to your ongoing support, it turned into a movement. Today, offline exists to help us explore the essence of who we are and how to live, create, and succeed in alignment with that. This is our true self. There's the podcast, a series of online courses I've created with our collective needs in mind, and experiences that allow us to connect as a community. Visit getoffline.co to find out more, or follow getoffline.co on Instagram. I hope this episode helps you on your way. Thank you for being here. My next guest is someone I learn from daily on Instagram. Her name is Danielle Prescott. Danielle is currently the style director at Black Entertainment Television, and before that, she held fashion roles at Marie Claire, Elle, Teen Vogue, and Interview Magazine. The New Yorker is as authentic as it gets on Instagram. One of the things I love most about her presence on the platform is it has nothing to do with her job. She's never pushing us to buy things. Instead, she chooses to use her platform to educate. If you follow Danielle, you'll know that she leads social conversations centered on calling out systemic racism daily. And she's a guiding light when it comes to holding the fashion industry, influencers, and media accountable for our ongoing failure to acknowledge, support, and elevate black people, their voices, and their work. We recorded this episode in March 2020. Australia was about to go into lockdown, and being in the States, Danielle had already been in isolation for some time. Since then? To say a lot has happened is an understatement. Danielle has been a key voice within New York City's fashion community during the Black Lives Matter movement, directing myself and other white people to the resources she was sharing years before we finally started to listen with the intent to learn. And she's also developing new resources for free, for our benefit. You'll notice I don't ask Danielle any direct questions about racism and allyship. This is an example of my privilege and my ignorance. 
my failure to give airtime to an experience that doesn't impact me or my world as a white woman makes me complicit in the silencing of black voices and experiences. To Danielle and other black indigenous people of color, I'm sorry. I commit to being a consistent, proactive and long-term ally, not just through visible avenues like offline, but quietly through daily acts no one will ever see. Despite my failure, we did cover an interesting set of topics in this honest conversation. Danielle shares how she's producing content for women during an international pandemic, not easy, how she thinks about telling stories, giving up Instagram twice, the benefits of therapy, her decision to freeze her eggs at age 30, and her advice to brands and businesses on getting representation and inclusion right. Here's the wonderful Danielle and I for Offline. To set the scene, it was 8am her time and 11pm my time. I feel like you can tell I'm trying to talk quietly as not to wake up Tony. I would love for you to share with with us and certainly the women listening um, your sort of career track. Like, can you give us a bit of a recap of the roles you've held and and also what you're doing now? Because, I mean, I know who you are because I'm in media. <laughs> um, but, you know, perhaps for the women listening who sort of aren't in our world, um, what have you done and, and what do you do now? Um, okay. So I started my career in fashion magazines. Um, and I kind of always wanted to work in magazines. I had no idea that there were many different roles that you could have. I thought that there was only like the people who put the words on the pages. That was like a job to me. And so I was like, Oh, I guess I'll do that. But then when I started interning, I was like, oh, there's someone who picks the clothes out. Like maybe I want to do that. Um, Mm -hmm. So I decided that I wanted to work in magazines probably when I was 18. I got my first internship and um, I took it really seriously. I did nothing in college but work. I, I didn't really go to school at all. People could ask me like, where a building was at NYU, I would not be able to tell you because I did not spend any time there, Um, which is an unfortunate expense for my parents. But (laughs) um, I ended up with my first job while I was still in college. Um, I didn't even want to waste time graduating because I didn't even want to take a day off to graduate. I was like, I'm already working. I already like you know, most people go to college that they can get a job. I already have that. So it's like, okay, so I've done that. I don't need to do all this pomp and circumstance. Um, but, you know, I did end up graduating and um, I have worked at Connie Nass. I've worked at Hearst. I've worked at Time Inc. Um, now I work at Viacom. And um, yeah, it's I, I transitioned to working more digitally. Um, as early as 2012. And I've kind of been in the digital space since then. Mm-hmm. That's um so similar to me. I think I took my first digital role in 2012. And I remember like, every, like, I don't know if you have this in the States, but we would go to, I was a beauty editor at the time. We'd go to events mm-hmm. and all of the like 
the bloggers and the digital people would be like at one end and it was this weird thing where people were like, mm, they're online, mm-hmm. <laughs> they've got blogs, whatever that means, and then the more traditional sort of girls from the magazine titles, you know, it still had that real prestige and it's been so interesting seeing that sort of turn and just um, balance out, I guess, and equalise. But I remember it was a very foreign concept here in 2012 that you would leave a magazine and get a digital role. But I think, you know, and then maybe that's a question for you is what was that kind of spark to move online? Because it is, I feel like it was a risky thing back then, but are you somebody who likes to be in emerging spaces or it was not that clear? You know, I, I really didn't think of it at all um, as a strategic move whatsoever. Uh, for me, it was just kind of like, I grew up on the internet. I used the internet all the time. It was very natural to me and it just seemed like there was more opportunity. So for example, I had been working at Teen Vogue and, you know, I could not get even I worked, I was the accessories assistant. So I, I worked on pages that included accessories. And if I picked a bracelet, there's no guarantee that bracelet would ever be shown anywhere. Like it, you know, it was very possible that it could get cut. No one would have known that I picked that bracelet, but because the internet was so new and like, we didn't really have any kind of like digital staff and no one was paying attention to it. They were just like, yeah, you can write whatever you want on there. Like, we don't care about it. It means obviously someone would edit it and, you know, it wasn't just like my personal diary, but it still seems like I had way more freedom and I could do way more exciting things. And I just think that people were more experimental and, um, it just excited me more. So. Mm -hmm. Same. Um, I've done a lot of reading about you in preparation (laughs) for chatting to you. And, um, I really love your your take on content and creativity and creation in general and storytelling. So you've used the words um, observe and intuition to describe how you come to tell stories and create content. Mm-hmm. And I want to unpack that a little bit with you because when I was working in, um, I mean, I guess I'm still in content and I'm just in audio now, but mm-hmm. when I was on digital titles, I used to speak a lot about sort of feeling stories before writing them and producing them. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's not dissimilar in podcasting because a lot of the time I can sort of sense the shape of an episode before I've even recorded with a guest. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you think about storytelling and particularly for online? Is it something that, I mean, sure, we can be taught it, but do you feel like for you it's more innate? You know how you just know how something needs to look and sound and the headline and the picture? And to me, it feels more like a feeling of what's going to perform. Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, it does come very easily to me, but I also think that I take a very humble approach to it where I think that sometimes people who um, are content creators can take like a heavy hand approach and be like, I'm the right person here. This is what I know is true. Even if they don't I actually had this experience recently um, with men. They were kind of like, oh, well, women like things about hair, so let's just make a hair show. And it was an 
absolute disaster. And literally, I mean, we're talking like hundreds of views on YouTube and like we have a a YouTube channel that has millions of followers. So that engagement is just like crashing and burning. But instead of humbly asking a woman who has hair, who does their hair (laughs) every day and has staff of several women who also have hair, they were just like, nah, we're going to go for it and do it on our own, you know? And for me, I kind of take the approach that's like, let me step back and like try to look at what it is that even if I'm not interested in the subject, what it is that other people like about this, you know, and tap into that. Mm, and getting into even, more of a mindset. Yeah. And even ask them what it is that they like about it. And yeah, try to this like, is big, hey. Yeah. And try to just um, try to be a listener more than kind of an overseer or like a, a dictator. Like I'm like, yeah, of course, like, if it is something that needs to be on brand for, you know, a certain, a certain media brand, like there are things that need to happen, but at the same time, like with content, you have to make sure that you are doing it authentically. And so I, I always try to do that. Mm. Um, I have to share with you that like one of the, there was lots of reasons I moved on from, Um, that role. But one of the reasons I did was I started to feel very um, compromised, like my integrity was being compromised, particularly out Mm. of the commercial end of the business. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you, you know, just shared, you know, men taking this view that women are, you know, hair and, you know, for me, I always say I was like lipstick and shoes. Mm -hmm. And there was always this sort of pressure to sell content and then get all these views on this content that I was like, but it wasn't our idea and no one's fucking reading it. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why it doesn't do well. But why this assumption that the content, particularly branded content, has to be about fashion or beauty or buying this face cream when, you know, you and I and all the women in our circles were interested in such a vast array of topics that don't, like, I don't actually talk to my girlfriends about makeup. Right. Right. Um, and so there seemed to be this, um, this intimidation around topics that were seen to be, you know, maybe a little bit polarizing for an Mm -hmm. advertiser. I understand there's risk where they don't want to be around certain topics, but it was one of the reasons I ended up moving on. So I thought I can't do this anymore. Like I can't sit here and think of another five ways to wear red lipstick yeah. on your next night out story yeah. and sell it to a, a makeup brand. Like I just felt like my journalist in the journalist in me, and I guess my journalistic integrity. Um, but do you find that? And, and I know, and I asked that too, to say like, I know you, you guys are further along in the States. I feel like you've been more progressive with sort of commercial content than say we have. I mean, I think that it, um, benefits companies to keep audiences quite stupid. So it doesn't really help if content is all of a sudden very woke and the customer's looking at this being like, well, maybe I don't need that. Like maybe I do need, like, you know, it, it actually like helps everyone, I guess, like not to be like, get very political, but like a capitalist system requires people to be consuming constantly. And if we are talking about things that like have nothing to do with consumption, 
like eventually people are going to wake up and be like, oh, we don't need that anymore. And that certainly will not help, you know, companies exist. So they don't want um, customers to be like, oh, intelligent. Yeah. Yeah. We don't, we don't need that kind of stuff anymore. Or like, we don't want to have other conversations about that. No, we want them to feel insecure. We want them to feel like they need us. We want them to feel like, you know, there's always something wrong they can fix by buying something. Mm-hmm. Do you think about that in your day to day as like a, as an, a director of content? I do. I mean, I also think about it, even especially at a time like this, like, it's like, how can we, like, I, I mean, I feel, I, and I understand, I know that everyone is in a really rough position. <laughs> like if you are, your business is selling clothes or selling beauty and, you know, people are worried about whether or not they have a job in a week, um, you still have to sell things or else you're not going to have a job. Like that's where it's all kind of interrelated, but it does feel pretty wrong to be forcing products on people right now when, Mm. you know, it's, it's just, everything is just so uncertain. And it's also Mm. like, frankly, not necessary. It's like, when you really think about it, we're so lucky that we're healthy and, you know, it's a, it's, um, a pyramid of need structure where it's like, so all of our needs at the base level are met. We have homes, we're able-bodied, you know, all of these things like come together for us. And now we can think about, okay, well, how do I improve my look or how do I improve my consciousness? But if those core needs are not being met, then you certainly cannot think about, you know, 40 shoes you need for spring. (laughs) Headline. Yeah. (laughs) Um, it reminds me, it's a question I asked, um, the girls from almost 30, the podcast on an episode recently, it was around the time our country was literally on fire, um, from like September through, I think through February. Mm -hmm. Um, and we recorded during that. And one of the questions that came up, which I'd be very keen to hear your answer on given the, um, coronavirus outbreak now how do you think about influence in crisis? Because I certainly know when the bushfires were happening, I just couldn't even be on Instagram. I was like, I can't even, there is like nothing I can post that's not just going to look completely irrelevant, but also like I just feel sick even if I'm not, all I want to do is post like links to donate and help. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you think about you know, you have a very engaged Instagram following that I know is very interested in your life and your, you know, love life and your, you know, you and your horse content, which I love. (laughs) Um, How do you think about influencing crisis and being on Instagram in times like this? I think that when you're someone that has followers, like whether or not you want to admit it or not, you are someone who has influence. And so because of that, you do have a certain responsibility to serve your community in a way that is not harmful. And so with something like this, I think it's complicated because there are many people who have already had contracts in the works for months And that's like stuff that people don't understand. Just because you're posting a selfie does not mean that selfie was taken that day, Mm -hmm. you know, that second, and that caption is created that day, that second. So I think there 
is a degree of people needing to understand that, you know, social media is also a business for a lot of people. So the same way that we can't expect a lot of stores to stop putting out, oh, we're having a sale emails during this time. Um, because you know, even that might seem insensitive, but again, they need to sell things to, to complete their job. So as an influencer, they also are to some degree selling something. So they need to do that to do their job too. I think that if you are someone who is a good citizen and, and cares a lot about your community and the world, um, you can do your duty to say that this is something that you have to do and try and like educate your audience to help them understand, you know, why they're seeing something. Um, and also just try and like, I think during this time, like be mindful of what is helpful and what might be harmful. So I don't know, like there, I think there's a balance, like there doesn't need to be like every single day, like here's more panic or like this many mm-hmm. cases or here's another graph or this is, you know, like every single slide on your story. Um, but I also don't think that it's helpful to just kind of ignore it and be like, oh yeah, like here's my vacation house in the Hamptons and I'm just having such a great time. Like, you know. Self-isolating in the Hamptons. Yeah. Yeah. I shared with Danielle that one of the reasons offline exists is to help us explore true self. Who are we without the shiny job titles and the Instagram followings? She seems to have very clear personal boundaries now, but I wanted to talk about the years that she didn't. I read that she'd burned out three times before she turned 30. Oh my God, it's, uh, it's still a work in progress. Like, and I don't know if you felt this way um, in Australia, but like here, it was kind of like, when you, when you got a certain job, you were always kind of concerned that you still needed to earn your position there. Even if you were there, you never felt totally comfortable and it was made to feel like you're just lucky to be here. So you just better be happy with everything, you know, that. Especially in media, right? Because it's like, they are quite blessed jobs in a way where you're at these events and you're getting these gifts and all that stuff. So no, I totally relate with that. Yeah. They are. And, you know, I feel incredibly lucky, but at the same time, it is a job. There are aspects of it that aren't great, just like any other job. Um, And so even just coming to the realization that you need to get paid for work (laughs) is is a relatively new concept in fashion. You know, I, I was actually so lucky that I always had bosses that I felt made it very clear to me that I was valuable to them that always advocated on my behalf to like get me more money. Um, or if I was doing extra work for them that they would pay me out of whatever they were getting paid. And I thought that was incredibly fair. And so I always try to do that when I'm hiring people as well. Like I don't ever want to like trick somebody and, make them, you know, do things that are completely outside the realm of like possibility. Um, 
because I'm not one of those people who's like, oh, just because it happened to me, that's the way it is. And it should happen to you as well. Yes. Oh my God. I have this as well where I'm like, yeah, man, that is like so big for me, especially I think women coming up in women's lifestyle media roles, Mm -hmm. because the traditionally what happened is we did have the devil wears Prada, like, yes, it is that fucking lame. We did have that type of boss, but it doesn't mean that we have to, yeah, put other people through that because we went through it. It's, Mm -hmm. what is that about? It's very strange. I also, I really do feel like it's a generational thing as well. Like, I don't, I don't think that any of my friends who are in director positions or like founders of their own companies, um, behave that way. I just don't, but I do see it in older women. I do. And it's really sad to me, but you know, I don't, I don't know. Um, you can't teach people. (laughs) You really can't. They have to, they have to wake up on their own. You can't expect people to to change. I mean, I still go to events now with, you know, some of those more, what we call them, just the, the, the elder women in, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in media. And, um, you know, I've met them handfuls of time and it, they still say, oh, hi, nice to meet you. I'm like, oh God. Yeah, I know. It's <laughs> such a not. weird like power play and all of the stuff that happens. It is. Um, there are some that are just cool and, and not into the BS, but there's like still so many people that like hang on to that old kind of um You have to attitude. earn my respect. And, you know, frankly, like the industry has changed so much. And I feel like the early 2000s was like such a golden time in media. Like there's so many um, books that journalists have written, you know, from Condé Nast um, about that time in particular. And it's like people were getting their mortgages paid. People were living in hotels for but months why do time. we get that? I'm like... Clothing my, allowances, oh. black cars. Like it really was Seriously? kind of like... And you got a salary. So it really was kind of like and a this big salary new, as well. Like yeah. Tina Brown's book, The Money She Was Talking About. I was like, what? Right. <laughs> that exists. <laughs> um, no, those days I feel like I we I didn't get them. No, we didn't get them. But it was also kind of like this dangling carrot thing, like, oh, maybe, but like, you know, if you would have asked me 10 years ago, if I wanted to be an editor in chief, I'd be like, yeah, of course. If you asked me tomorrow, I'd be like, absolutely not. <laughs> no way. No way. I don't want that job title. And I don't, I don't want, I don't want to do that. Um, so yeah, I think that, I think that a lot has changed, but it's also important. So I think the requirements for like an assistant or a, a junior editor at that time were very different. And now I just don't think that it's necessary to put yourself through that. I'm like the the benefits and the perks of working those hours and working that much, it's just really not going to do anything healthy or productive for you personally. I just don't mm-hmm. think it's like worth it at personal expense to do that to yourself. Mm. Um, you gave up Instagram for 43 days for Lent. I did. I did it twice, actually. Oh, did you do it twice? Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, the story I read, I think it was a Harper's story. You said it was the best 43 days of your life. Mm-hmm. It was great. Um, part of what you explained in the story is that you realized you were using Instagram when you felt bored or sad, 
but that you also felt suffocated by the personal sort of brand you'd cultivated about being truthful and authentic, which I found so interesting. I really relate to that, mm-hmm. especially the DMs, because they've become a massive part of my life. Like mm. I feel so connected to my listeners and the same as you, it's like they write to me and it's like, it's not just a, hey, cute thing. It's like a full, you know, a share. And I feel like I can't, I'm not just going to send a love heart back. You know, I want to be in that with them in its totality. Yeah. But it, you know, it requires a couple of hours out of the day to actually focus on, on that. Um, tell us, what did you learn from the break besides the obvious of knowing that maybe you were over-reliant on it, but like, What was it like? I'm very inspired. Like a lot of the time I just want the internet to completely go away. Yeah, it was, it was really healthy. It was great. Um, I loved it because it really forces you to, I mean, how often are you like somewhere out or at a show or I don't know, just anywhere and something happens and you watch everyone around you pull out their phone. It's crazy. So it's like, if I'm like, but if I'm not sharing it, then I didn't need to do that. Like I, I sat through like all the fashion shows, just like watching them. Cause I'm like, I don't need to like watch them through my phone because I'm not sharing it with anybody. And of course there is a benefit to being able to share information that way. And like, obviously in a time right now, like this is like all we have to communicate with each other. So it's useful. But for the most part, I do feel like I was just checking it constantly. It was like a reflex. I would do something on my phone. I would send a text or I would send an email or I would look at something and then immediately I would go to Instagram. And I was just spending so much time on it. And so now I have a time limit of 15 minutes a day. It's like that's what? how long I should be able to do all the stuff I need to do. 15 and, minutes. Yep. So I'll like I'll like take pictures on my camera roll if I need to like do something for a story and then like backlog them later for posting. That's incredible. 15 minutes. I mean, that's just my basic morning scroll. <laughs> without, yeah, but you, you know. but if you know it's 15 minutes, you do it way less. Like so I'm like, okay, I'll wake up, I'll like do like a quickie. I'll check all my <laughs> my like DMs for my friends. Cause that's how like, you know, I communicate with a lot of people. It's like, we're sending each other memes. Like I'm in some group chats, like, you know, just to look at that and then go about doing something else. Like, and you don't get sucked in cause it's not like, you're like, Oh, it's like kind of like a, a countdown that's happening. Yes. Um, well, one question I have for you is how worried are you for women who aren't perhaps processing their stuff because of the mindless scrolling? You know, it is that escapism from really what's going on inside. Like, do you worry for women and for us, I guess, in as a collective? Yeah, I worry for everybody. Um, I think I particularly worry for young people the most because I think that they are at risk for the most damage um, because of uh, growing up with social media and such an image obsessed and image focused culture. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, we know that it's not good for us, <laughs> even like our eyeballs. Like, I don't know if your eyeballs ever hurt by because of how much screens you look at, but like I wear glasses now and I never had to before, but it's because mm, I look at Let me show you screens. these. <laughs> I've got these, um, they're those 
Oh, the blue light ones? The blue light blocking ones. They're quite yeah. chic, these ones. Yeah. Um, but I've been wearing those when I work at least and that's that's helped. But for sure, I think, gosh, like we're just the guinea pigs for these phones, you know. Yeah, it's like so we crazy. we don't know the damage. And we're addicted. Like, And so it's like as, as an adult person, I feel like I can kind of like shut off, but it's still difficult for me. So I can't even imagine what it's like for someone whose brain isn't fully developed yet. Like what mm. are they going through? And then what's it going to look like for them in 20 years now that they've been doing this for so long, such mm-hmm. a part of their lives? Would you be open to talking a little bit about therapy and the sure. ways that it's helped you? And the reason I guess I start by asking your permission is because it's not actually wild, widely spoken about in Australia still. So, mm-hmm. you know, I've had some incredible years in therapy and so have many of my girlfriends, but it's still not really spoken about here as much as it is in the US. Like I remember when I was working with um, Pop Sugar and Who What Where, so many of my conference calls with the girls over there would be them telling me what their therapy session was like before mm-hmm. you know, our conference call. So it was so um, beautifully open. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess I'm trying to do some modelling here for for women listening to say, you know, we can be expressed and we can talk about the experiences we have. And the question I have for you, um, and I guess it's pretty broad, but what has therapy revealed to you about yourself? Like what have been the big sort of like, oh, aha moments? Um, well, I've been in therapy probably since I was 14, um, on and off. I've had many different therapists. Um, and I got my most recent therapist. I went through like a really bad breakup, um, three years ago. And I had gone to this one therapist and she was really insistent that I go on medication. And I just was, I was very resistant because uh, I had never been on medication before and I, I just didn't want to be. I mean, the other factor was that I was very scared that any kind of medication would make me gain weight. And I was like, I'm not doing that. I will sooner jump out of a building then like <laughs> be on this pill that gives me, you know, 10 extra pounds. So I, I just, I was very like, I don't want to do this. Um, and then I found my current therapist and, um, she, Is this the one that sends you the texts? She does send me texts. Yeah. Those texts. It's such a gift to us that you share them. <laughs> she is really great. She, my, my current therapist, she's very big on like, homework and action. And she's like, you know, my job is not to see you for the rest of your life. My job is to help you like cultivate tools so that you can like live your life without me. You know, that's like what the goal is. And I'm like, I like that because, you know, therapists in New York, they make a fortune or like, you know, any kind of, um, any kind of healthcare worker really, but like, because it's private and, um, it's very, it can be very, very expensive. So it's nice that like someone is, she's like clearly not super obsessed with it for the money just alone. Um, but with her, one of the things that she would always talk to me about was like self-love. And I hated that phrase so much. (laughs) It made me it, it definitely it, brings something up in me when you say it. I'm like, Ugh. right? Horrible. Yeah. I, it was like, I'm enraged. Like, I don't want to talk about this. <laughs> I think it's so stupid. But I also think that our industry 
is responsible for our reaction to that word. So like it's not, the concept itself is really not that icky, (laughs) but because like, I think it's been so commercialized and so like, oh, like self-love just means like a bubble bath and a mask and like a glass of wine and, you know, that kind of thing. I'm like, it's not that at all. Because what she was trying to teach me was that all of my problems were stemming from self-loathing. Like I was just like, I feel this incessant need to always prove myself because that's how I feel like I get love. Achievements, success, like, you know, it's like, it starts with like grades and then it goes to like trophies and things. And then it's like, okay, what job do you have? And like, where do you live? And all of these like tick marks. And then I was feeling so frustrated because I was like, I'm so unhappy. I have all the things. I look exactly like I should be looking. I'm doing everything. I'm miserable. What is the deal? And she's like, because you don't love yourself. And I was like, that's so stupid. Why do I need to love myself? Like, what does that have to do with anything? (laughs) And she was like, she was so insistent. And so, um, yeah, it was learning for me. I think it was like learning to let go of all of that and that like need to prove yourself. And I think that helps going back to your question about boundaries. I think that helps to create boundaries because it's like, I would be like, I can't say no because now this person's going to be mad at me and they might not invite me the next time. Or they're, they're not going to like, you know, at work, they're not going to ask me to be part of this project or whatever. Cause, but it's like, I need to love myself more to be like, I can't do that right now because I'm tired or I can't do that right now just because I don't want to. It doesn't even need to be like a reason like, you know, you don't have the capacity for it. It's like, if you don't want to do something, you don't have to. So knowing that it helps you to make clear boundaries and to kind of like establish yourself independently. Mm -hmm. And say no and not take it, not make it a personal a personal thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. My, my big, my big therapy, like my big aha was, um, actually it was like the therapist I saw for that year was the therapist that helped lead me out of that job. Mm. Cause I actually went to her for something else. And then mm-hmm. she was like, you're not okay at work. I was like, work's not why I'm here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm here because I'm anxiously attached. I want to talk about that. Mm -hmm. We actually never hit that stuff at all. And she, what she helped me identify was that she used to say I had this Pollyanna syndrome where I had this um, male CEO that is still a a mentor of mine. And honestly, I just am so thankful for his leadership. Mm -hmm. But I I was much the same as you. I couldn't say no to him. And so I had this sort of the disease to please. And you know, I would just kind of like do anything that was asked of me and I would never be disruptive and I would never challenge. And it was always just kind of like, yes, master, yes, master, you know. Mm-hmm. And I thought that I owed him something because he'd given me an opportunity. Mm-hmm. And by the end of the year, I was like, oh, fuck, I've got to quit this job. And she was like, yeah. And I was like, oh my God. and then, you know, kind of off we went. But that was my, so my big, my big learning from that, that year was, I guess, developing the ability to politely challenge, you know, and I use the word politely because that's my style. It's not like I'm going to come out of the gate and, you know, be this aggressive person, but I don't always have to be the 
the yes master, you know, yeah. or the, like the young female leader who, you know, is shiny and does everything that she's told. Mm-hmm. Actually, I can be a more progressive leader if I stand on my own two feet and develop my own style. So um, it was a very helpful year. I definitely did. We didn't talk about anything I wanted to talk about, but I guess that's their job, isn't it? It's like peeling back the, you think you're here for this reason, but actually the thing that we're going to be working on is right here. Yeah, exactly. And I also think that when you learn those skills, it kind of like, it spills over into the other aspects of your life. So you didn't even know it was going to happen for work, but it's like, no, that's actually what you're, you need to focus on. And it, it's applicable to like so many different areas. It was at this point I thanked Danielle for sharing her experience freezing her eggs at age 30. She saved a highlight of the whole process on her Instagram account. So if you're interested in this topic and want to see the reality of it, please go and have a look. Considering the physical, emotional and financial impact it can have, I wanted to know if it was a hard decision to make or not at all. I mean, it was hard and not hard, if that makes sense. Like, uh, I always knew that I wanted to have children. Um, And so when I went through that breakup three years ago, I then immediately started dating afterwards, which is probably a mistake. But um, I just was so disappointed constantly by all of the men that I was meeting. And then I was like, Oh my God, like, what if this is becoming a real possibility that you don't get married in the next, you know, few years. And that means that you might not have children in like this kind of time frame that you want. And so first letting go of time frames and this kind of like obligation factor has been also part of my therapy. Like you know, oh, you need to like have this title by this time. And, you know, because frankly, when you're much younger, it's simpler. Like by the time you're seven, you must be in second grade. By the time you're (laughs) 14, you must be in high school. Like very simple, right? Like, but it doesn't really work like that outside of that structure. So, you know, I had to let go of that timeline. But also the thing to know is that like biology is not necessarily on your side. So even if you're someone Mm -hmm. who's like, oh, I don't care about timelines. Whenever something happens, happens. And it's like, sure, okay, but you don't want whenever something happens to happen and you be 41 and then you have like a myriad of fertility issues, which happens to a lot of people. And I saw it happen to a lot of women that were um, senior to me um, in in my career and through work. And almost all of them had to go through IVF. And it was a grueling process to like watch. I mean, they didn't like obviously document it like I did on Instagram, (laughs) but, um, you know, like hearing about it and knowing how difficult it was for so many women to get pregnant and me thinking, oh, but they're young. Like that should be fine. They should be. And it's like, it really isn't that simple. It really isn't. And you don't want to like, I always have this thing where like, I'm nearly 35. mm -hmm. You don't want to freak other women out by sort of. I'm especially mindful on the podcast of like, you know, if someone's listening and they're 34, 35 and they haven't met someone yet, I don't want to be that person who makes them, you know, question themselves or get scared about it. But the reality is like, you know, I'm old for babies. Like it's, we're supposed to be having babies at like 26. So we're waiting like a decade. But this is my 
pet peeve at the moment. Mm-hmm. Why is it that we um, we peak professionally at the same time our eggs peak, mm. but that the workforce has not modernised to a point you know, where we have the flexibility and the support that we need. Like we talk about flexibility and inclusivity and all that stuff, but it doesn't exist, especially for women in senior roles who, you know, are generally at the top of their career and then, yes, realising that, you know, they might need to go through something like IVF. There's no, you know, so many of my friends going for like ultrasounds and blood tests and trying to fit it into their lunch break and then getting in trouble if they're late. It's like freaking hell, like. No, it's crazy. I mean, I, I think it's a lot of misogyny. I really do. And I also think that the assumption too in the professional realm is that you will continue to put your personal life aside or you, you'll continue to put that aside, you know, and for a lot of people, that's true. They just, they don't think about it. So for me, I just was like, I want to take control of the situation. I don't want to be anxious about it. And I, you know, I had to go, before you start the process, at least the place that I went to, you have to go to a seminar to kind of learn about everything. And I was the youngest woman in that seminar by at least 10 years. And How old so are you now? I'm 31. And wow. so, and so, wow. When they show like the graphs of like fertility and, you know, how it drops off. And I couldn't even imagine the feeling of looking at that graph and being like 45 and thinking like, oh my God, why didn't I do this when I was younger? I mean, if I could tell any, I'm like, do it when you're 17. Mm -hmm. It's like, you have nothing else to worry about. Just do it. And then you can think about it later. You can use them. You can not use them. You can donate them to science. You know, it doesn't, it, but it's your healthiest and the eggs are best when you're youngest. And that is just something that we don't, talk enough about. Like it, it was like my gynecologist never even brought it up to me. It's like, we spend so much of our lives trying not to get pregnant because that's going to slow us down. <laughs> it's so funny now, all the times I thought I was pregnant, I'm like, lol, <laughs> no, that wouldn't have yeah. even been possible. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. What, um, what advice would you have for women who are interested in exploring it? Like, was it, um, was it extremely like emotionally and physically taxing? Um, it, it was, but it is a really short time. So, although I will say the recovery like gives it a longer tail, but it's IVF. If you only have to do it once, which because I did it when I was young enough, I got a lot of eggs. So I didn't have to do it more than once because the other factor is like, once you do the egg extraction, like there's such a slim chance that those eggs can then become embryos. Like that's why you hear people doing IVF so many times Mm. because the percentage that then can become a healthy baby is also pretty low. So like you kind of need a lot of eggs if you're going to want to do it. a lot of uncertainty, isn't there? Yeah. So what's a lot of eggs? Um, What did you get? I have 23 or 22, something like that. So that would be like a lot. Um, Like a little would be like 10. Like that would be like you have to do it over because like 50% of them are just not going to be viable. I'm Um, so happy for you that you got that many. Oh, thanks. Um, Now they're all just frozen up. 
Yeah, exactly. They're just like sitting there in a freezer (laughs) till I have to use them. And the thing is, it's like, I hope I never have to use them. But in case I do, I feel a little bit more in control of the situation. I don't have to then do it when I'm 40 something. I can, Mm -hmm. you know, I can use my eggs from when I was 30 something. Yes. Um, yeah. I've got a couple more questions for you. Mm-hmm. You're um, a very positive and informed voice for your followers when it comes to the lack of diversity. And I mean both ethnic- ethnicity and size in fashion in particular. Mm-hmm. I feel like we're, and you know this as well, but we're living in a time where diversity can feel like the tick in the box exercise, seeing a lot of that in campaigns at the moment. I wondered if you could give some advice to brands that might be listening. I know there is, you know, some marketing directors and things like that that do listen to the podcast here in Australia. Mm-hmm. What advice do you have for them and and also like how how do you define getting it right? Well, again, I think it goes back to listening and not assuming that you are the expert. So if you are not someone who can speak to a certain experience, don't assume that you can control that narrative. So for me, like I am, I am a straight size person. I know that. Um, I know that I, I, I am not like the, the face of, of body diversity for the fashion industry. But because I can be empathetic to that struggle, I feel like I can be an ally. So I try to use my platform and the fact that I am, I do have a privilege in that area to aid people who don't. So I think the same thing works for people on an ethnic level as well. If you are sympathetic to a struggle, like you don't need to speak for someone else, but you can give them the platform and the opportunity to speak for themselves and be like, I'm going to stand with this person while they tell me what it's like to be them, you know, and and see what their problems are. I think that, you know, it's not just about what a photo will look like on in your marketing campaign or on your Instagram um, because of course, it just feels yeah. like that now, doesn't it? Where it's like, there's, you know, the white Caucasian girl, there's the Asian girl, you know, there's the black girl. It just feels very like mm-hmm. that. Of course. And I will say that I do think that representation in a visual aspect is really important. It is important for girls to see themselves as beautiful. It is important for, for us to see many different types of women, but if we're just letting people be faces and not voices, I think that's really dangerous. And so we need to like also make sure that we are truly including people in conversations. That means giving them opportunities, making sure that they, um, they, they are able to intern, that they're able to get jobs, that they can then start to make their own dishes and decisions one day that you're like, providing a roadmap and a framework for them to be able to do that and making it a safe space and not making it feel hostile or it's like, oh, you're the only one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're the token person. So yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> be that for us. That's um, extremely helpful. So thank you for sharing your advice. Mm-hmm. Um, I ask each of my guests a final question. 
Okay. Um, and the best thing is, is that you haven't listened, so you don't know what it is, whereas a lot <laughs> of people know what it is. Okay. Um, but offline exists, as I said before, as an exploration of true self and, you know, particularly as, you know, very ambitious women, who are we without the social media following, without the job title, mm-hmm. without all of our stories and our mm-hmm. claims about mm-hmm. what we've done And so when you're sitting in your true self, if you strip all of that away, who are you and what comes up for you when I ask that question? It's so funny because when I think about myself, like with like where, like who I really am, I'm like, and you like, I'm like, wow, we, we might really see this. Like the longer this quarantine goes, I'm like, the more (laughs) real me might come out. Um, (laughs) Me too. (laughs) It's crazy. (laughs) I only spend time with myself. Uh Uh-oh. But honestly, like, I'm really, like, a very nerdy person. Like, I have always been extremely curious and have had a very big imagination. So I was a reader, like, I don't even know from a very, very, very early age. So I've always been like into like that kind of escapism. I love, I I read both fiction and nonfiction, but I think that that is kind of like how my world has been opened up through books. And so I think that like the core of me is just like this insatiably curious being. And so that is how I ended up doing what I do because essentially like what we do is storytelling. So, um, yeah, to, to open that up to other people as well. So that's it, nice. it's funny that's when you're so not nice. like, you're like when people like, I mean, again, I think this is like the assumption that happens when you're interested in shoes or beauty or clothes. They're like, you look a certain way and people are like, Oh, that must be a cool girl. Or that's a girl who cares only about surface things. And it's like, I mean, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think you can have like a very beautiful life and you can look very cute when you go to the gym, but you can also be very smart. Mm -hmm. I think it's very limiting when people kind of like put that assumption on you that just because you might care about the way that you look, that you are somehow shallow. Or two-dimensional, one-dimensional, I guess. Yeah. Mm. I love that. Um, (laughs) Thank you for being on my podcast first thing in the morning. On what day is it there? Is it Thursday still? It's Thursday, yeah. Yeah, so it's just hit um, midnight here. I feel like my voice sounds like it's midnight. You haven't heard me before, but it definitely is like, why are we still awake? We're usually yeah. in bed three hours ago. Yeah. Um, but it's been such a pleasure talking to you. And, yeah, it's just so nice, actually, because you know, I definitely have given you a good stalk. Oh, and okay. so to be able to ask you those questions and hear your responses <laughs> firsthand is is really nice. So I appreciate it. Of course. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Offline. Visit getoffline.co to explore more episodes, the online courses I've created to help you succeed consciously, and upcoming community events. Follow getoffline.co on Instagram and me. My handle is Alison Larson Rice. Lastly, if you know someone who would benefit from hearing these honest conversations, please share offline with them. <laughs>